does that. Yeah. Shake the rafters tonight. I'm excited about jumping right in. So go ahead if you would and raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. If you do have one, open it up please to 2 Corinthians 11. We pick it up tonight in verse 24. If you'd um, get there. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 24. Paul has been <clears throat> affronted by the, in essence, a group of people that have somehow infiltrated the church he planted in Corinth. And they seem to have a prosperity doctrine to them. They have found ways to disqualify Paul's ministry because he's not healthy, wealthy, but he is wise. And there would be many today who would disqualify Paul's ministry under those same pretenses. Running around in their Armani suits and their waving their things on their TV stations and, and making you pay 30 pounds for their handkerchief that they wipe their sweat with or something. And Paul is in essence now put himself in the place where he's, he's stooped down to their level. He's gotten emotional. And you're probably aware of the fact that emotions tend not to bring out the very best of you. Often said that emotions can make a good ignition but they're a terrible steering wheel. And Paul has put up with it up to this point. He's been writing this letter and he's just, it's just getting the best of him. Now when he's starting to, in essence now, because he's so flabbergasted by the concept that these people are questioning his calling, these people who were going to hell before they encountered him, met Jesus through the ministry and then are questioning whether Paul really has a ministry at all. Which has to look so so strange to him. <clears throat> and Paul left off last week saying in verses 22 and 23, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they then the seed of Abraham? Well, then so am I. Are they ministers of Christ? They speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant, stripes above measure, prisons more frequently, and deaths often. That's what we left off as we looked at the cost. Of ministry. From verses 24 to the end of this chapter and then beyond, but specifically here, we're going to see the level of commitment Paul displays not just to these people, but to be honest, to the ministry that the Lord has called them to. And I want you to know that God is calling you to ministry. What that looks like. Some of you are already seeing the appetizer. The main course is coming. Prima is before you. Secundi is on its way. You're getting a taste of what it means to be used by the Lord. And can I just say, second to just being saved, there is no greater thing. There's just no greater feeling than knowing that the Creator of the universe has used you to touch some human life. But let it never be said here that we are a molly-coddling church when it comes to ministry. The Bible refers to those who serve the Lord not only as servants, but as sowers and soldiers. Servants, slaves, yes. And the point of that, of course, is that we are not living for ourselves 
We are not calling our own shots. And we cannot even demand the outcomes that we think are best. We know that the Lord is working in a way that is infinitely more profound. We can trust Him in that. But we cannot demand from God anything if we are going to be His servant. As a sower, it also requires a great deal of faith. No matter how good the soil is or appears to be, no matter how great the seeds appear to be, you may think you have Jack's magic beans. But it's still a miracle that any seed die and and, and grow forth from there. And the point, of course, is that we are to act in faith. We are to be faithful, but to stop overthinking the ministry in such a way that we feel like we need to be soil specialists. And I know that there are people, it's like before they start a church, they're doing their demographic surveys, they're doing their marketing research, they're doing all of this stuff so that they know how to best market the church to people. In essence, they're doing a whole lot of soil samples. The problem is, is you could get so caught up in that that you really just don't sow seed. The way that the Scripture speaks about it, it's indiscriminate. You're throwing the seed everywhere. Because you just never know where it might blossom. And I'm sure some of you have, if you've been in the ministry for any period of time, have seen situations where you've seen the soil, the seed land on the soil and go, oh, this is a, this is a sure fire, fire slam dunk situation and be surprised that it's not. And in other cases, think this is just going to be food for the birds and then watch crazy things happen. And the point of it's simple. We must act in faith. But we must act in faith in such a way that we have a go for it in our spirit. But he also calls us soldiers. And as soldiers, we need to recognize there's a battle to be fought. Now our King Victorious leads us in triumph. Scripture makes that clear. But you need to recognize that the battlefield is still a battlefield. Jesus told us that all of the world will hate you for my name's sake. So if you're living by the, for the favor of men, Following Jesus isn't going to be your best bet. Paul said, if I wanted to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Jesus said, if we even want to call ourselves his his student, then we must pick up our cross daily, deny ourselves and follow him. Self-denial is the fundamental. It is the foundation for why all of the other things work their way out. See, I don't have to start live my whole life worrying about me. Truth be told, because I'm not responsible for me, the Lord is. No, I'm responsible for the choices He lays before me. But I don't have to spend my whole life infatuated with me because I have somebody else who is who's better and greater in every way. And Paul now is in this place where his emotions have gotten the best of him, and now he actually, in essence, is talking about what really qualifies him for the ministry. And I'd like to ask you, as we look at this, how long of this before you stop? Before you resign? Before you're like, I'm so done with this. You know the pressures and the... And, and, and Paul, in essence, if Paul could speak to us, I have a feeling his tone, though his voice may be high or whatever the case, and though he may be an unimpressive guy to listen to, I imagine he would still be in this intense coach mode, the kind of guy that would be banging your helmets just to try to get you going and saying, are you serious? This is what's going to pull you out of this? 
this is what's frustrated you so much that you're not sure whether you can continue? Scripture makes clear, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Listen to what Paul says, and we're going to walk straight through it, starting in verse 24. But let's pray. Lord, for every verse, minister profoundly to us. I pray, Lord, that we could hear your voice speak to us. We trust, Lord, that when your word is open, your voice will be spoken. Your voice will be heard. And and that is why we're opening your word and we're trusting you. And that's why we sit here night after night expecting you to speak to us where we need to hear it. And so, Lord, we've come today to interface with you, to hear from you, to take from you, to draw from you, to allow you, Lord, to have your hands on the clay of our lives, to shape it in that which you have ordained. So, Lord, let us take to heart tonight that we would now walk out of here when this is done with a steely resolve, with a cemented ambition, Lord, and confidence And that our conviction, Lord, would be impervious and unmovable. That we would so cling to You. That we would be immovable. Because You are our rock. Our fortress. Our foundation. You are all the things for which we could say as we cling to You, I shall not be moved. So Lord, as we read this, Give to us what we need tonight and let us be ready to receive that we can take that and apply it to our lives and see our lives changed. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Please let the Word minister to you and stand on it. This is what he says starting in verse 24. From the Jews, five times I've received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep stop. In our first two verses of Paul's rant, it's almost like Paul has now all of a sudden gotten himself a YouTube channel. And he's not boasting in the sense of, check me out, I'm awesome. But he's laying out a different conscript than the people who are laying out theirs. Theirs is they have all of their degrees from their seminaries. They're wealthy. They have applause from their peers, which, by the way, they've all set up in their own community. I know which Paul is an outsider. Paul, in essence, is a grassroots, unimpressive to look at guy who seems to love the Lord and people and wants to see his gospel preached. It's strange that he would be disqualified. And in our first part of that, look at that. That's five times. That's 39 stripes. Three times beaten with rods. One stone. Three times shipwrecked. And one time a night and a day in the deep. And that's just the beginning of our our list here. Now, (coughs) it's important to note that most of these things we do not actually have in Scripture. In other words, Paul's listing things that aren't even recorded in Acts. We have no clear record of Paul getting whipped that we know he'd been beaten. And here it tells us five different times this guy has gotten beaten to the extreme. According to the Talmud, the greatest amount of lashes a person could receive by the Jewish people is 40 stripes minus one. And the idea of it is you pull one back for mercy. He says, five different times I've received the full of that. 
<coughs> and we have none of those necessarily in Scripture per se. <clears throat> so all the things you see in Scripture, you can add that on to it. He says, three times he was beaten with rods. We know of one of those times in Philippi, in Philippi by the way, when Paul in Acts 16.22, we read, Then the multitude rose up together with them. The magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they laid many stripes on them, then they threw them into prison. Paul does say, once I was stoned, and that we do have in record. That is in Lystra. That's central Turkey, by the way. Careful of those Turks. Paul had been speaking. There was a man who was lame that Paul had seen God perform a miracle through him. And Barnabas at the time, the people said, this is the gods Zeus and Hermes, the god of power and his spokesman, and the Jews that had come from prior places, Antioch, by the way, <coughs> excuse me, had come there, convinced the people otherwise, and they stoned Paul and left him for dead. So we do have that. Three times he was shipwrecked. Interesting, because of the three times that he was shipwrecked, we do have a record of Paul's shipwreck. It's in Act 27. And here's the best part. You ready? It hasn't happened yet when Paul's writing this. I want to remind you, this isn't at the end of Paul's ministry. This is in the dead heat of it. It means there's all kinds of suffering he has yet to do that we're going to read about that Paul doesn't even have on the list yet because he hasn't experienced it. Like the one shipwreck we have in Scripture in Acts 27 that he hasn't been recorded in here because he hasn't lived it yet. So when he says three times he was shipwrecked, that's three times beside the one time we do get to read, by the way, in Acts 27. A night and a day in the deep? When that was, we don't know. And again, he's not at the end of his ministry. And here's my question to you. Would one stripe do it? To forget it. And there's two different ways to not minister the way God's called you to. One is, you can just outright, openly declare, I'm done. I'm so done with this. And the other is, perhaps even worse, where you still think you are, but you've pulled out all its power. Hypocritical ministry, Jesusless ministry, is impotent. It looks good, and it's warm and fuzzy. It's like eating candy floss. Perhaps it tickles your tongue for a moment, you may feel a little bit of energy, but you're going to get nothing out of it that's going to sustain you. And we can do that too. And I think to be in such a case, that means your own people have outright sought to humiliate you. <clears throat> the idea of striping somebody isn't like Rome where they beat you into confession. They beat you to humiliate you. What does it take? How bad does the humiliation have to go for you? A coarse cross look? A coarse word? Somebody saying, oh, shut up. Would it be enough? And I think. And we, and we cry out like we should be on Oprah about how deeply we've been verbally abused. While Paul here has at this point, if you think about it, received nearly 200 stripes. And I think each one of them, if you will, like one of those things that the sergeant gets, where they see the greater his, his rank, the more stripes he receives. And I think, ah, not it. To be beaten with rods, where they rip off your clothes and seek to show their mastery over you. Have you ever seen such a situation where you felt so humbled because 
the group itself, whatever the group is, has tried to prove their superiority over you. Have you been there? Would it be enough to stop you? To be stoned. Now somebody's trying to kill you. To be shipwrecked. Now how do you not wonder where God is when He holds all of the seas in the hollow of His hand when you're in the middle of a shipwreck? I mean, some of these other cases you could say, man, these guys are going to really get it from God. But what do you do when the ship is going down? Now maybe the first time you think, oh, this is awesome. God's given me an opportunity here to go and preach Jesus. But by the second one, you start wondering, am I doing something wrong? Spending a night and a day in the deep. And this is just our first two verses. Verse 26, then, he starts talking about things that he's experiencing in great deal. For instance, <coughs> excuse me, in journeys often, perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, and perils among the false brethren. Did you get what word is sort of common there? Perils. Yeah, you got that. What does it mean to be in peril? Yeah, and actually the idea of it is it's not just I could be in some form of discomfort from this. Genuine peril, like the word perishing, which I'll have the root word, means that I could die from this. And the idea of it is he could die from the water. We could get that. He could die from robbers. We certainly see that in our country. We see that in our city. He could die from the Jews. He could die from the Gentiles. Remember in Ephesians chapter 19 when he was in Ephesus in chapter 19 of Acts when, uh, when the Demetrius and the other ironmongers who had been making their idols realized that they were going broke because everybody was turning and getting saved. Could you imagine what that would look like in London? All of a sudden the pubs are starting to empty out for the churches. All the strip clubs are going broke because nobody's visiting them anymore. The gambling houses now are starting to become vacant because nobody needs to gamble because they'd rather take the money and build an orphanage with it somewhere. You realize someone's going to get pretty upset. In the city, he could die. In the wilderness, he could die. In In the sea, he could die. And this isn't him being like Anne of Green Gables and he's in the pit of despair because somebody said something nasty about him. He genuinely could die in any of these places. And you get to that point when Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. I imagine it's almost become his mantra. He has to say it so much because to die is actually a reality. When was the last time, honestly, the last time you actually thought, and I'm not talking about being melodramatic, but you honestly thought death is actually fairly a possibility at this moment in regards to me. Can you remember when that was? I mean, I'm not talking about you had the flu so bad and you're like, God, just kill me. That would be so great. I'm talking about where you're like, you know what? Genuinely, this could turn out, I could be before the Lord with this. Can you count on your hand how many times you could recall like that? Paul could, and that would just be this week. And you start to think, this guy is like committed. Is what he is. You just cannot beat the Jesus out of this guy. And you cannot beat the ministry out of this guy either. He wants to lay hold of that for which he was laid hold of. And interesting, he says, you know, I want to know the power of God's resurrection, but to know the power of Jesus' resurrection, I need to know the power of his death too. 
Verse 27 now tells us what his lifestyle was like. We have words like weariness and toil. Kapas. Words in the United words working your fingers to the bone. Words of being exhausted. Sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, fastings, cold, nakedness. Then he tells us weariness and toil, sleeplessness, often hunger and thirst and fastings, often in cold and nakedness. And this is just what's happening to him, I remind you. And you think, man, serving God, don't you think I should never be cold? And I look at that and I'll be honest. This church is not the hottest place in temperature. But none of us are going to die of frostbite here. Now, we're still looking for a place that may be more comfortable. But when I compare it to what Paul experienced, or even, for instance, things like the Covenanters' churches, I think, man, we're so driven by comfort that we'll avoid anything that makes us uncomfortable, even if it's to our better. This guy's like, you know, I didn't eat. I was cold. I didn't have clothes. I didn't sleep. And I did that often. And in verse 28, he says, besides all these other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul, when he plants a church and leaves it, doesn't necessarily leave it completely. That's obvious. Now, he doesn't keep his claws into it like he feels like he has some form of judicial right to make all of its decisions. But he'll say, for instance, though, that even though I'm not present with you, my spirit's present with you. And it's like the idea of it is, man, my heart's still driven towards you. I mean, when I think of you in prayer, I can't stop thanking God. It isn't like I, I kind of have such a detachment now that when I pray, I pray for you like you're somebody that I've never met. It's like, man, you're in my heart. And I can't stop. I mean, I feel fresh emotion when I pray for you. He says, you know, amidst all of these other things, So I get beat up. So the government beats me up. So the common person beats me up. So I go to the city. It's not safe there. I go to the countryside. It's not safe there. I try to get on a boat. It's not safe there. I don't sleep like I could. Eat like I could. Drink like I could. I'm not clothed like I could be. And I remind you, this was a guy who was inches away from a great career empty career where he would have had all those things and more as a religious leader. And yet now he knows what it's like to be alive. And not only does he know what it's like to be alive, he knows what it's like to serve people in that life. What could possibly compel a person to be this committed? Notice what he says in verse 29. Who was weak that I'm not weak? It isn't like I'm not like you. Who was made to stumble that I do not burn? And do you see how it's in italics with indignation? And I can't tell you that that's misleading or it's properly leading, but look at what it says without it. Who is made to stumble that I do not burn? Look at the context of the last thing. Who's not weak that I'm not weak? And the idea of it is, you know, hey, so you have struggles? Do you think I don't struggle? Your struggles, I have struggles just like you do. And I get the idea of what it says here. Who's made to stumble? That inside, I don't want to do that too. Paul's not somebody like he wakes up and like Chris Tomlin's playing in his heart all the time. It isn't like, oh, by the way, I decided to write a new hymn today. 
Now, he may have had those moments. But Paul still was challenged. And let me say this to you. The temptation can come from the tempter, thus his name. And James would tell us that just receiving the temptation, being tempted is not the sin, it's what you do with it. You start entertaining it, you start developing it in your heart, and then you start trying to figure out how to accomplish it. Because that's when you're you're dragged off or carried away by that. And Paul knows, though, the, the devastation that comes by caving into the temptations. He goes, but that doesn't mean I'm not tempted. Now, the good news is he doesn't develop that. But he's like, you guys, you need to know what you're tempted with, I'm tempted with too. What you struggle with, I struggle with too. Paul was a human being and thus was challenged just like the rest of us. He was just committed. So he says in verse 30, If I must boast, I must boast in the things concerning my infirmity. The God of our Father, of our, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. And then he brings up one specific situation. He didn't bring up any situations about being beat or being stoned or being in He doesn't develop that at all. But this is like, and I wonder if like, you ever have those moments, no matter how weird things get, there will always be these little moments you can refer back to. It's like in, fresh in your library, no matter when you get to it. And it's interesting because this was at the beginning of his ministry. When he says in verse 32, In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and escaped from his hands. What's interesting is that's Damascus. Let me remind you, Paul was on the way to Damascus when he met Jesus. He got to Damascus. And then, ultimately, his ministry would start there. This is Acts 9.25. This is the beginning. And I wonder if maybe it was so profound because it was his first experience in ministry. He's like, let me tell you how ministry started with me. I irritated a bunch of people because I tried to argue Jesus with them. And then they had to let me through a wall so I didn't get killed. And that's how ministry started. So let me ask you something. What if your ministry started like that? You tried to have a Bible study, and the first thing that happened is that people hated you so bad because you told them the truth, or maybe just tried to argue about it, that they all wanted to beat you up and you had to actually put a restraining order, some kind of, you know, something to make sure that they never went to your house again. Now, which one of you thinks, can't wait for next week's Bible study? But that's what Paul's telling us here. Imagine if Paul's saying, Welcome, everyone. Now that you know that God's called you to ministry and not just to become a fat Christian couch potato, I'm calling you to ministry. Let me tell you how it starts for me. It starts with me for running for my life. That's how it started. Now, granted, I had to learn how to not argue Jesus, but preach. There's a difference. But let me tell you, it was a bit rough. And there's part of the fun. To be honest, those crazier, weird moments become the moments you refer to and laugh later. Most of the time, those of you who will be getting married, which may be most of you, some of you may be sooner than others. <coughs> well, it stands to reason some sooner than others. Most of the things that go perfectly right, you'll seldom remember ten years later. The things that go really kind of wonky, those are the things you'll be able to laugh about later. This last Israel trip... We had several crazy moments 
And there will be the moments we'll probably remember for most of our lives. How the rain came and how cold it was and those kind of things that, to be honest, you would never have put, if you could actually sort of, you know, tick the boxes of exactly how you want this thing to go. That's not any, bo- I mean, I don't think any of us would have ticked those boxes, but in re- retrospect, it really made it that much more cool. When we first started, there were guys, I mean, we, when we first started the ministry, my wife and I, moving to the Central Coast, we were about as young as most of you here. So don't disqualify yourself. Some of you are even older now. And we were ignorant. And the two things we had going for us, other than we loved the Lord and each other, is that we knew we didn't know what we were doing and we knew where to find it in the book. We were looking for a handbook or some video or how to grow a church. We just knew if I could read this book and, and just ask God, he would be, he'd lead us. So you go out and you just preach the gospel to anyone who'd listen. And that was my goal. The little town we lived in at the time had one, real, one place where everyone sort of met, met together, and it was the saloon. And it was where all the drug deals took place. It was where all the shady business took place. And there's a really big bouncer guy that stood in the front with almost an afro. But he looked like something that should play rugby. Should be, he looked like two rugby players shoved together. He kind of looked like Mr. Potato Head. I mean, he'd been been enough fights where he was a little bit more Picasso'd on the face. And I remember him, and I tried to share the Lord with him, and he's like, shut up. I'm like, all right, just let me finish my point. He died for you on the cross for your sins. Rose again, and he wants to give you brand new life, and that's the choice you'll have to make for the rest of your life. It's like, what, are you some kind of preacher? You could call me that. But as long as you know what I'm preaching, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, and you have a choice whether you want to receive him as Lord and Savior. Shut up. Okay, I got my point across. But Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Was buried and rose again on the third day. And you'll have a responsibility to choose him as Lord and Savior. And we'd go in and start to share with anyone that I could. And I remember him saying, you watch your back, preach boy. I'm thinking, God's got my back. Who's got yours, Holmes? And I'd start sharing with the guys, and they were either the drug dealers that were there at there, or the surfers that would be coming in after a good set. And I remember that for the first year, and actually it would have been longer, but we were rebuked by an assistant pastor. We didn't even allow anyone to give because we knew how badly people had been abused in the neighborhood by, quote-unquote, music men, ministries. And I remember sharing with this guy named Greg. And Greg was told, he was he was so much of a surfer you wouldn't even believe he was telling he was being true because he talked like yeah, and you just like I'm like I need the gift of interpretation I don't know what in the world is he just spitting on me or is he actually trying to talk? Now remember I'm not from there originally so when he started talking like that I started to laugh because I'm like oh this is for real. And I remember sharing with another guy named Scott. And both of these guys were kind of big guys. Scott was actually kind of like Jeffrey's size. Then inviting them to the Bible study and saying, you know, you really want to know more, you can come to the Bible study. And I remember sitting there, and my wife and I are sitting in this, in our tiny little reception room. And one of the guys comes in, Greg first, you know. 
And he was, of course, completely uncomfortable. You walk into someone's house, you don't even know who they are, and you're the first guy in there, you're going to be uncomfortable no matter who you are. And I'm like, hey, let me get you something to drink. Man, let's talk. How's it going? Oh, it's a little hospital. Oh, okay, well, maybe we won't talk, but let's here, you have something to eat. And, and then I, and I watch him sit down, and just as he sits down, Scott comes walking, and Scott comes walking, and they both look at each other like, and I'm like, uh-oh, there's some kind of weird electricity going on here. And finally, Scott kind of walks over and he goes, hey, man, no big deal, right? And he's like, ah. Uh. And then they, like, you know, pop knuckles. I'm like, what in the world's going on? See, what had happened is the two of them had been out in the water, and they were really going for the same wave. And, and what happens is you have this leash that keeps your board from, like, yeah, you don't have to swim to Hawaii to get your board. And it's like a leash you wrap around your heel, around your ankle, and then the, the rest of it is attached to your board. Well, if somebody, if, well, a really rotten thing to do is if the guy kind of gets positioned ahead of you, you grab his leash and you pull him back. It's cheating, right? Well, that's what had happened apparently in the water. And because these two guys are pretty hot-tempered guys, they were, um, <laughs> they were, they were, were like pushing each other and punching each other. And they're like, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Yeah, I'm going to kill you too. And then they both show up in my Bible study. <coughs> you know, and of course, the whole Bible study, of course, as you might imagine, is all about forgiveness and how we have to humble ourselves and how Jesus humbled himself. And they're, man, they're both getting uncomfortable. And, it's, you know, and they're like looking at each other like, did you tell them? Did you tell them? Did you tell them? And I don't know what you guys are talking about down here, right? But you can tell they both think that somehow the other one's ratted on him so that I'm preaching this message directly at them, right? And you get that. The husband that says, look, if you, you, my wife's better stop calling you about the message. And you're like, whatever. Like, you know, that's happening. You're like, you know what? If you're getting nailed, it's the Holy Spirit and you better deal with God on that. I just want you to know now, Scott's actually a pastor of a church in uh, New Zealand. He's overseeing several ministries there. And Greg, by the way, actually heads up surfer ministries on the central coast to this day. But there was a time when you had to, I jumped in the middle of that thing, and seriously, at that point I'm thinking, I'm going to have to fight this from both sides. But I tell you what, I never questioned whether I was called to be there. And they never said, you know what, I'm so done with this. These guys are getting crazy. And there's no doubt people you trust are going to turn around and flip on you and say crazy things and then act like somehow you deserved it. And sometimes, to be honest, you probably did. Sometimes you don't. Most of the time I've learned you don't if you try to keep your nose clean. But in it, you know what? If you take yourself too seriously, you're going to go mental and you're either going to quit or you're just going to grab a semi-automatic weapon and start shooting people somewhere in a mall. What made Paul not quit? Because I'm here to tell you, it's going to happen. Get over it and walk with me. It's still, there's still nothing worth like it. There's still nothing possibly worth it like this. Well, I want you to look at the next chapter, and we'll go through a part of that too. And that's how this wraps up. You see, what takes place in the next chapter tells us what drove Paul. Although I think the way he says it, it's almost like, it's kind of a strange way of putting it. Look at it with me. Verse 1, it says, now remember the whole idea of he's defending himself. And he's like, you know what, look at it. Look at how I've been beat up. Look at how it didn't stop me. Look at how it was stoned, it didn't stop me. I was whipped, it didn't stop me. I was whipped five times, it didn't stop me. I was beaten with rods five times. It didn't stop me. Look at how I was shipwrecked and shipwrecked and shipwrecked. And whether I knew it or not, I'm going to be shipwrecked again. And it didn't stop me. Look at how when I was among the Jewish people, they wanted to kill me. It didn't stop me. Look at how when I was among the Gentiles, they wanted to kill me and it didn't stop me. 
Look how when I was in the city, they tried to kill me and it didn't stop me. Look at how when I was in the, in the wilderness and they tried to kill me and it didn't stop me. I mean, it's like, you know what that's like? I'm, I'm laying out in the middle of the you know, wild prairie and I hear something like a twig break and I'm thinking someone's trying to kill me. And the worst part is, it was probably true. So how do you keep going? How do you keep going through all of that? Well, it's just, listen, it's doubtful, not profitable for me to boast, but I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Since I'm, you know, since I'm kind of laying out our credentials here. And then he says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body, I don't know, or whether out of body, I don't know, God knows, such a one was caught up in the third heaven. Which makes me ask, exactly how many heavens are there? Scripture doesn't make that clear. Some people are like, there's, there, you know, and some people it's like they've got them listed and categorized with like a chart and a graph. and everything. It's like really very creative stuff you got there, but it's just not scriptural. But it does say here there appears to be at least three stratas, is the idea. And understand heaven, it isn't, doesn't necessarily even mean here like, like you could go to heaven and you're like, there's like a lift, you know, and I'll take the third heaven, please. It could even easily just be that there's the atmosphere on the earth, there is an atmosphere above us, and beyond that is heaven as we know it, and that's the third heavens. Because remember, heavens is just anything above us, first and foremost, as he looks at this. One thing's for sure, he happens to be somewhere near God now. Near God's throne. And it says, 14 years ago, caught up in the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which are not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I won't boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I would be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I ref- if I refrain, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees of me, or hears of me. And then he, excuse me. <clears throat> and he says, unless that I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given me. Now, is that kind of a funny thing to listen to, those first seven verses? He's like, look, at if we're going to bring out credentials, let's talk about Revelation. Who's really seen something great? Oh, I know this guy. 14 years ago. And he saw this great stuff that it's like you can't even really you know, say enough. He goes, I don't want to talk about you know, me. We'll just talk about that guy. But since I had these great revelations, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And you kind of get the idea. Paul's trying not to boast, but it's slipping in anyways. Now, if I go back 14 years from this point, you know where I go back to? Paul being stoned. And I wonder if Paul really did die. When Paul was dragged out and left for dead, maybe he was dead. But somewhere in the beginning of that ministry, on Paul's first mission trip, if this was Paul, and I, pardon me for saying I tend to believe it really is him speaking of himself here, that he saw something and whatever he saw was so profound, so meaningful, that it permanently altered everything from that point onward. Now, now, now we know some of these verses. Matter of fact, we probably know most of these verses. If I could see what this guy, Paul or whoever, saw, would it drive me? I mean, I know Matthew 25, verses 21 to 23, or Luke 19, 17, where the Master calls before Him those that he's, been, he's given things to, and He says, because they've been faithful, 
enter into the joy of the Lord because they've been faithful with very little, which by the way was money, which he called very little, have authority over cities instead? Would that motivate me? Would it motivate me to know that someday I have the opportunity for my Father in Heaven to say, well done. And not because it's a script here and it's like everyone's on a conveyor belt and he's like, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Can I really think that the life I've lived is one that would sequester that response from God? Do I really think if I shack myself up in a little fortress somewhere and I read my little Bible and I pray my little prayers, and I'm not trying to devalue those things, but my whole life is wrapped up with the fact that I won't let anyone know that I'm a Christian and I don't want to cause any waves and I don't want to, and there's just, I don't want to affect anyone. And somehow in all of that, with what God's given me, I've basically taken it and I've just pulled it into myself. And then I expect at the end of that that I'm going to stand before God and God's going to go, that was so good. What kind of thinking is that? Do I really think that God's going to applaud mediocrity? Do I really think that God's going to applaud me not using the gifts He's given me? Do I really think that God's going to applaud me when I took all of His things and I used them for me? I think, God, grace, more grace, more grace. One of the things I'm learning, and this is in my walk now with the Lord, this is current, is when I'm praying more grace, more grace, it's not for me. Give me more grace that I could spend it on other people because I really need to offer more grace to people. Oh God, give me more mercy so that I could extend more mercy to others. I mean, it's taken me this long in my walk to start to realize that the things that I ask the Lord for aren't always supposed to be for me. Yeah, maybe I'm a slow learner. I'm thinking, I really want to hear that. The one who knows me perfectly, I want him to be able to say that. And I don't want him to say that because somehow I'm expecting him to. I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to stand before God that have done nothing, and God's going to go, what? You really think I'm going to say something? Well, you, you, you made it in, I guess, technically. And I know that Jesus tells me in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, to lay up my treasures in heaven. Like I can lay up my treasures in heaven, verses now. I start to think what that looks like. And I think you learn a lot about a person when they're at home. You learn kind of who they really are. I mean, you could kind of be on your best behavior. I get that. In other situations. And I realize, though, yeah, some people tend to be a very different person at their own house. I learned this with couples more than anything. The way that they act in church could be very different than when they're at home. And I think, well, what about Jesus when he's at home? Well, that's all Revelation 1 stuff. He's glowing. He's emanating this light. We read that his feet are like varnished, in the simplest sense, like arc welding. It's pretty bright feet. And he speaks with the sound of rushing waters. You know, you ever have a sound so loud that every muscle in your body clenches when it happens. He's like, come on up, John. I'd like to show you a few things. By Revelation 4, it says this, After this I looked and I heard, Behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice that I heard was like the trumpets speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I'll show you the things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and there was one who sat on the throne, and 
He was there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne there were 24 elders. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, and voices. Seven lamps were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne... And around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes on the front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like a man, and the fourth a face, and the fourth like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each with six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and give thanks to Him who sits on the throne... <laughs> who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before Him, who, the one who sits on the throne, and worship Him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor. For you created all things. By Your will they exist and were created. Can I ask you something? Just from hearing that text, what is the one focal point in that chapter? The throne. Did you notice everything... The reference of everything is like that. Before the throne, around the throne, beside the throne, in the midst of the throne, before the throne. Coming out of the throne. See, for John, and don't miss this, for John, he's brought up to heaven, man. And understand, when in Revelation, it's the simplest book in the Scripture, honestly. You think, well, what about these flying creatures? These flying creatures? They seem so bizarre. Yeah, they're only weird because we've never seen them before. In heaven, we might look weird. And the four living creatures go, <laughs> where are the rest of your eyes? You know, I mean, where you, where, there's no wings. You know, it's like, okay, well, it's your territory. I get it. But I mean, it's like we think, well, that's just crazy. That can't possibly be. Why? Because you've never seen it before? Really? Hey, God can do whatever he wants in heaven. Now, now, hear me. Jesus said, write the things you've seen, the things which aren't the things which must take place after these things. The entire structure for the entire book of Revelation. I won't develop all of it because that's not our point. Chapter 1, John saw Jesus, he writes what he's seen. Chapters 2 and 3, the conditions of the church. There's seven different churches with seven different conditions, the things which are. Chapter 4, the things which must take place, metatauta, after these things. Matter of fact, verse 1, just so you know what's the case, starts and ends with that word. Just in case you know when the after these things start, it's chapter 4. After these things, I saw this thing, and it was after these things. Well, what does he see in chapter 4? What must take place? Well, what must take place first is this amazing worship service that takes place in chapters 4 and 5. And John is brought up to this place, and you know what he sees? A throne. Somebody sits on the throne, and they're like these beautiful stones. And then he sees around the throne, there's this, this rainbow, and there's thunders and lightnings proceeding from the throne. Oh, and then there's other thrones that sort of sit by the throne. There are 24 of those, and there are these old guys. All an elder, by the way, is, is an old guy. That's all it means. So you say, well, everybody's really like little naked babies. Well, no, nah, because there's 24 elders, presbyteros. That means old guys. So 24 old guys are sitting on thrones with, with crowns on. And then there are these, this crystal-like sea that is before the throne. And then with that, there are these four living creatures, whether they're actually dancing, walking on water, or they're flying or whatever. And they're crazy because they've got eyeballs everywhere. But John looks and he goes, everything's about the throne. And he sees this beautiful worship service. Holy, holy, holy. Worthy, worthy, worthy. That's what you're going to see in the next two chapters. That's what he sees before any hell breaks loose on earth. There's this amazing worship service that takes place here first. 
And John sees this and he's like, whoa. And imagine, it's like God saying, you get to be a part of this, John. Johnny, I've got this whole thing worked out with you. And this is, this is coming attractions now, buddy. This is the stuff that must take place in Metatalpa after these things. This is what's going to happen. This place you're looking at, this is not like you ate a really crazy pizza and you're getting great weird dreams. This is reality. Here's the weird part. This is the reality that the life you have right now, you're going to wake up from. One day you're going to wake up, though it feels so real, because at the moment it's as real as we know real to be. Have you ever had a dream that was so real that when you wake up, you're still trying to figure out what reality is? You're like looking for something in your dream. You wake up and you're like, ah, what is it? I don't even know what I'm looking for. Because the dream somehow is sort of dripping back into the reality of the, of the waking life. There's going to be a day we're going to wake up from all of this and we're going to stand before God. And there is an immovable throne that is set. Literally, the idea of it's set is it's immovable. Man, that thing is the landmark in the beginning here. We're going to be before him and it's like, you know what? For all the things I've made you to be, you really are different. That's what the word holy means. It's unique. You're so different. You're so perfect, so pure, so kind and so loving and so full of grace. Oh, how stupid I've been to try to make you so much less than that so that I could understand you. When I should have just by faith said, you know what, you're just different. You're different and better in every way. Perfect in every way. And you're worthy. I think all the things I gave credit for and I cheered for and I wanted to be like and I pursued and I lifted up and adulated and I look at all those things and I was like, what was I thinking? So stupid compared to this. And I'm, I, I am in the midst of the greatest place in, in eternity in anywhere. And I realize, man, you realize John was also like Paul. It's like no matter what they tried to do, they couldn't stop John from worshiping Jesus. They couldn't stop him. And I, I wonder if we could just see that for a minute, if that would really change us or not. Or would we just think, oh yeah, whatever. I mean, Philippians 2.10 tells us that every knee is going to bow, right? That means whether you know it or not, your knee is going to bow. It means Satan's knee is going to bow. I think about Isaiah chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. We're actually going to see him and we're going to go, this was it. This was it. This was the guy that shook kingdoms. This, this, this was it? I'm like, yeah. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world a wilderness and destroyed cities? And didn't open up his house to the prisoners? This is it right here. This, this. You know why we're going to say that then? Because we're not comparing him to him. I'm sorry, we're not comparing him to us. We're comparing him to the Lord. His knee will be bowed. Now, up to that point, I compare him to me, and I'm like, you're pretty, pretty big, you're pretty bad. Then I look at him and compare to God, I'm like, oh my goodness, did I ever think for a moment that this could get past that? Did I ever think for a moment that this could get at me when this says he loves me like he does? Really? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 28, talk about a time where all rules going to be laid at Jesus' feet. Until then, all of his enemies have been made a footstool for him. It tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it says, You know what, beloved, let me tell you something. And I get John telling us this story. And I imagine, what if it was after what he saw in heaven? He's like, listen. 
It hasn't been revealed yet what we're going to be like. But I want you to know this. In the twinkling of an eye, quicker than I can snap, quicker than you can blink, the amount of time it takes for light to be processed from the front of your eye to the back of your eye. In that amount of time, you're going to be changed. And not like, it's oh, look at this lengthy process. No. Because that's what we see now. But it says we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. There's a moment we're going to see Jesus and it's like, you will have actually been changed. I will be changed before I could have finished my snap. And he goes, listen to this. He goes, and everyone who has this hope in him is as pure as he is pure. Do you know what that means? That means just wanting that gives you credit. Like, oh man, what John saw. And what Paul says here is, this guy, whether it be him or not, I'm going with that it is. He saw this thing and it was like so amazing. There were words spoken that I can't even repeat. Because when you see that, you realize, how, how, could I, how could I possibly live this life the same? How could I possibly live now thinking, oh yeah, 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 this world, this is all there is, and let's just make sure we've stacked our deck for ourselves here. Really? See, now, if that be the case, we can read through the book of Revelation. You know, the first thing we think is, oh, man, the world's going to get really bad. You know, people are going to really suffer and there's object suffering. Yeah, but what about the whole heaven part? Don't miss that. What part do you have a greater allegiance to? If you have a greater allegiance to heaven, well, you'll realize that's the good stuff. So listen to how this part ends. Lest I should be exalted above measure by these revelations. By the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given me, a messenger from Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted above measure. See, just seeing this stuff and knowing this stuff could put me in a place where I could become like in a new category above everybody else. <coughs> and God knew that. Now, it says, by the way, lest I be exalted above measure. The question is, who would do the exalting? Would it be people or would it be Paul? You know, Paul is the one who will tell us that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And I wonder if God did this for Paul's sake, so that Paul didn't think he was the man. And you know what he's saying as a result of this, strangely enough? Because remember, this is he's boasting about these great things. He's saying, actually, this infirmity is one of the things I'm boasting about. This is one of the great things in my street cred, is how God has put a limit on me. Now, I, I think of it as a governor. Some of you are familiar with that term in regards to you're trying to drive somewhere, and the car actually says it goes 140, but it really only go 100 because they put a governor in it. In other words, it really can only go this far now. And for some of us, the Lord puts governors on us. Understand, I get this. Before we moved south to start the church, we lived up in Northern California. And in Northern California, I was on my way to all things to traffic court. 
and I was blindsided in the back. I was T-boned is the term we use. I was in what was called a two-by-four. It was like a four-by-four truck, but it was only a two-wheel drive. And what that means is there was no weight where the, t- where the wheels actually spin. And a gal hit me still stepping on the accelerator. In her Pinto, the amazing thing didn't explode. Spun my truck around one and a half times and threw it into a, about a quarter of a meter curb. I got hit so hard, I dented the door frame with my head and my shoulder. And I get out of the car because I'm concerned about the driver of the other car. And the woman jumps out of her car and starts to scream at me. That's just great. This isn't my car. I don't have any money. And I don't have any insurance. And I'm like, lady, I'm the last guy in the world you need to be telling that to right now. I'm a block away from my house. And I remind you, I'm on my way to traffic court. And the reason is that when I bought the truck, the tires were larger than the original tires, but they hadn't attenuated the accelerator, if that makes any sense, the speedometer. See, when you put bigger wheels on it, it actually goes faster, according to where your speedometer is. But I had bought it that way, so I didn't, wasn't aware of that. Nonetheless, what happened is I got it fixed, and the whole thing was great. The thing is, I went to court, and as I'm at court, I felt like I was on a ship. The whole thing just started going like this, which is really not the kind of condition you want to be in when you're standing before a judge. You're like, dude, you're melting. And all things like, right? And I'm thinking, oh, this isn't good. From that point on, I've been dyslexic. Now, I can somewhat read, but this is why I don't read books. I don't read books because it's a lot of work to read. It really is. It is a lot of work. It tires me out. If you look at the size of the fonts I use, it's only so that I can read through something. And the only thing I try to read is Scripture because I know, and by God's grace, I'm able to do that. Now, I'll still, you know, work through articles and stuff like that, but none of that is easy. And the only reason I tell you that is this, that the Lord knew before we ever started a church that I needed a governor. I mean, I used to be one of those kind of people, you ever watch, you ever see those little triangle things where you jump little pegs and you keep removing one until one's left? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about at all. Some of you might know. I could think that whole thing through in my head before that and just go, okay, this, 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 this. I mean, now I look at it and go, that's just pegs, man. Just start going somewhere and see what happens. This, the amount of series that I could think beforehand, of course, was radically, radically altered. But you know what's allowed me to do? Rely on him more. Now, I would never have volunteered for that. But I am so thankful that I have him to, lie on, to rely on, to lean on, to rest on. And it's always been him. So when the Lord brought in five, six hundred college students and it was my temptation to start moving towards the intellect. And, and, and for a while it was sort of a natural thing and I'm like, whoa, 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 this is not where we should be. And the church grew bigger than it had ever been, but nobody was serving anymore. And I'm like, wait a minute, I need to actually rest back on what the Lord wants to do here. So listen as we close this up. This is what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 4.12. And onward. Brethren, I urge you to become like me because I became like you. You've not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first. In other words, you know why I showed up in your town? Because I was hurting. And my trial was, which was in my flesh, you didn't despise or reject. But you received me as you would even an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have even plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. 
kind of get an idea that his infirmity might have had something to do with his eyes. Did you get that? Or he looked so bad they just wanted to pluck out their eyes. But they didn't just want to pluck them out. They wanted to give them to him. So I get the idea. It was, And this is why some people think he had cataracts. Some people thought he had glaucoma. Some people just feel like he had malaria. Whatever it is, we don't know. All we know is this. Is that Paul, having seen whatever he saw, and whatever revelation he had received, whatever he saw up to this point, he could have actually taken all that and made it selfish and made it about him. But instead of writing books about it and just trying to make it look like he was the expert, God leveled him so that he would still have to rely on the Lord for the strength. And he can level us in all kinds of ways. He can level us so that the bottom line is the result is that we are forced to rely on him because we have no other option. And whether we know it or not, God is constantly putting us in that place because sometimes it's the only time we lean on him. He's like, God doesn't want to be like the distant relative we call once a week to check up on. Wants to be the person that we recognize we need like air. So he says, listen, lest I would be exalted, whether that be from other people or I personally exalt myself, God allowed this thing to happen. It was given to me. Here's your gift, your governor. For Jacob, that was a, it was a shrunken hip, a shrunken sinew, that he would limp for the rest of his life. I don't know what it is for you. But he knows how he knows how beautiful it is when we live a life that leans on him. Concerning this thing in verse 8, I pleaded three times that it might depart from me. And I kind of learned that from Jesus. You know, Matthew 26, 44, he prayed, he prayed three different times. And you know what God's response was? It was not, you know, if you were actually better and you were more blessed, you would not actually go through this because actually if you have my blessing, you're never going to be sick. That's not what God said. What he said is, listen, my grace is enough. It's enough. What I give you is is all you need. But that's not what I want. God says, I'm not telling you what you want. I'm telling you what you need. And what you need, I give you. It's more than enough. Because listen to this. My strength is made perfect and weakness. Wait a minute. That becomes the problem. Whose strength do I want to see perfected here? Who do I want other people to see as strong? Me or the Lord? Because if I really want to show the Lord strong to others, well then I can't compete with it with my own strength. And the Lord will allow weakness so that we can see how strong God is. You're like, I'm so tired of being weak. I'm tired of not having the control over this matter. I feel like I'm helpless. God says, you're helpless without me so that people can see your only help is me. But I'm setting your life up to be a platform, to be a pulpit for the strength of God. But it is not to completion or perfected except in my weakness. Therefore, most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest on me. If I talk about how great and awesome I am, how are you going to see God's power in that? Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities of reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses, Christ's sake, for Christ's sake. And when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You know why? Because when I'm weak, I have God's strength. I'm stronger when I'm weak than when I think I'm strong, is what he's saying. So, I become a fool in boasting, but you made me do it. Isn't that what he's saying in verse 11? You compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you, 
For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles. Though I'm nothing. It isn't that I'm as great as them. They're just not as great as you think they are. You should sit with Peter sometime. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. But what is it which you were, which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Oh, forgive me this wrong. Listen as we pray. You can't be called a ministry without having a relationship with Jesus because it's going to be rough enough. But when he calls you to ministry, he calls you to change the world. You're called to change the world. You're a world changer. That's what you're called to do. How do you like that? You're not just going to be somebody that takes up a little bit of space and like a little bit of perfume so that when you walk in the room, things are just a little nicer. You're going to burn things down and raise new things. That's what you're going to do. The metal that he's made you of becomes a crowbar to tear apart the greatest of pillars. And then becomes an iron girder that sets itself up within the greatest new sanctuary that God builds. All of that's within your metal. But for that to happen, it's going to have to get pounded and it's going to have to get heated. It's going to have to be put in the crucible. That's all part of it. And guess what? You qualify. You qualify for the pounding. You qualify for the crucible. Because He loves you. He loves you enough to use you and transform the world with you. And so, maybe you'll never be striped here. Maybe you will. Maybe you'll never get abused. Maybe you will. Maybe you'll never have a a relative say those nasty things, but they think they care when they're saying it. Maybe you will. Maybe you'll never have a whole group of people point and laugh at you, or maybe you will. Maybe you won't feel rejected by those that used to be your friends. Maybe you will. Maybe you'll think that things will run smoothly and they don't. (coughs) Maybe you'll think that you should just get an easier life. Maybe it won't happen. Maybe you feel like by this point you should be mighty in all of these great ways and maybe they're not as mighty as you think. But somehow in all of this, the strength you have is the Lord's and that's what's going to be seen. And if the most important thing is seeing what God shows us eternally, I guarantee you it will rearrange every part of our priorities. Tonight I want to pray for you and me here in this beautiful believers meeting that we would get back to the cross where it started, His resurrection. And we would realize that our permanent home makes this whole You live a hundred years and compare that to eternity. What does the fraction look like? When you wake up from this however long moment that we have here that's like a vapor, you're cashing in on eternity. And I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I don't want him just to say that to me. I want him to say that to you. And it's not, what have you done for me? what you're going to do with him. That's the beautiful part. The beautiful part about being weak with him. The reason he's able to show his strength is because he's not asking you to do stuff for him. If that were the case, we'd need to be strong. But it's what he wants to do through us. And our weakness grants us greater compliance for him to do what he wants to do through us. Tonight, 
we lay our wimpness down. We say, Lord, give me the integrity to walk this walk, weak as you want me, so that you would show your strength and change the world. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you. One thing's for sure, when we look at Paul's life, this is a guy that did not stop. He had temptations. We watched him even cower a bit when he was in Athens. But he was unstoppable. And Lord, whatever it is we need to see, whatever scripture text we need to grab a hold of, whatever thing, Lord, that we need to have in Revelation, Lord, the danger is we would say, well, I need to see some of that so that I could have a better thing. But then when Paul saw that, he had to be given a thorn in his flesh. I'm not too sure I really want to volunteer for that. I'd rather just have the devotion without having to see all that. I know enough from Scripture to know what's going to be there, at least to some degree. And I pray, Lord, that my love for you would be so deep that it wouldn't even matter anything other than this. You're going to be there, and that's all that matters. That you'll be my temple. You'll be my light. You'll be my home. So, Lord, as you've died for us and risen again, as you've given us new life, eternal life. Lord, I pray that we would, that You would strengthen within us, Lord, the conviction to serve You at all costs. To leave what we need to leave. To embrace You the way we should embrace You. And properly prioritize. And Lord, I pray tonight for every one of us that You would ignite us with that passion, Lord, to be able to lay our life before You when we stand before you and recognize <clears throat> and recognize that when we do, we could lay down before you a precious jewel of a life surrendered to you. And in which case, without reservation or regret, we lay it and say, Lord, here it is. It's always been yours anyways. Like the elders who throw down their crowns or the living creatures who cry, holy, holy, holy. We want to lay down our lives, Lord, and declare you uniquely King of our lives. And in that, Lord, however weak we are, whatever ways we struggle, whatever things we're challenged with, Paul made clear he was a person who struggled. And Lord, You tell us that struggling doesn't remove us from ministry. It's what we do with it. And Lord, I pray that every one of us would really get a greater conviction and a greater strength and a greater backbone and a and Lord, that we would be so steely-eyed and hearted, Lord, that You would harden our hearts from the world and its influences. Harden our heart from the enemy and his influences. And strengthen our hearts in You. That we would do Your will the way You call us to. And that You would live through us magnificence. We commit this to You, Jesus. The One who died for our sins on the cross, showing total commitment, rose again, on the third day, fulfilling all Scripture of the promise. And in that, give us a new life where we can live with You as the very core of our life. Uh, to be our very life. So here we are, we're Yours. Now, Lord, use us. Make us bold. Make us powerful. Make us, Lord, invincible in You. And in that, make us effective. In Jesus' name.